I appreciate this opportunity, and I don't take it lightly, and we are just a congregation uh, who stands with the congregation globally, recognizing the place of God in our lives and the joy, really, of coming together and worshiping Him uh, on Sundays. Please pray with me as we get started with uh, talking about today the, the household of God. Lord, thank you so much for your grace toward us who believe. Uh, we love you, and we know we do because you are the one who shed your love abroad in our hearts that gives us this, this incredible spiritual ability uh, to love. Um, even where there's differences, even where there's similarities, there is this love, Lord, that, that, uh, that we are endowed with that causes us to see each other the way you do as children of God. Lord, today uh, the task is before me of uh, illuminating what you've said about the household of God. And the task is with all of us listeners to uh, take this as, as just an entrance into this topic that would need to be explored uh, really for the rest of our days on earth. So be with us, uh, give me words to say, and, and give us listening ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Who do you most identify with? I have a background in psychology with a bachelor's in psychology, and for the most part, it's been fairly worthless, but there's some use when you start to consider uh, the deeper things of life uh, that sometimes... We hover on the surface and, and don't always dive in deeply like a question, who do you most identify with? And whether we are aware of it or not, we're always grappling with that. Like, who am I? That's really what, what's, what's underpinning the question. Who am I? Who do I most identify with? These identities will determine what we value. It'll determine what we like, what we love, what we think most of, what we give most of our time to, what we consider to be precious, and ultimately, they shape us. Identity, uh, for the most part, may be acquired by parents, the people that we spend the most time with. We've heard about role models. Uh, Identity can come from cultures people connect with, what they believe to be the essence of the culture that they were, were brought, uh, brought up in. And uh, even political party, like that could, that could be an identity shaper. And certainly, certainly the church can be an identity shaper. For the believer, though, none of these, none of these influences rise to the top of what's truly the standard for establishing the identity for a believer. As a Christian, what do I rest on most to establish my identity that determines who I am, that determines what is my worth, and that determines what I give most of my time to? So for the next few minutes, what I want to do is is peel that out, talk about Um, our identity as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the passage that was read earlier, Romans chapter 8, is the place where 
um, I will begin. Now, obviously, because this topic is such, such a rich topic throughout Scripture, the Apostle Paul would call it a concept or a doctrine. It's something that's absolute. It's something that never changes. It's something that you can tell a five-year-old and you can say the same thing to a 65-year-old and it still has the same meaning because it emanates from the Word of God. Romans chapter 8, Paul says, For all, all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back again into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs together, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. I've entitled the sermon, The Household of God. Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14, he says, I write these things so that if, that if I'm delayed, men ought to know how to conduct themselves in the household of God, which is the church, the pillar and foundation of truth. The church, and of course, we're not talking about the building, we're talking about the worshipers who enter the building, is the household of God. And in Romans 8, there there are phrases, terms used, um, and we certainly can connect those to what it means to be a part of a household. Sons, adoption, children, heirs, father, all of those terms connect to the, the idea of a household. And you also have all three of the persons of the Godhead. You have the Trinity also connected to the idea of the household of God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, each represented in this small passage that connects us to the family of God, if you will, the household of God. And so believers, therefore, we as believers, we enter into a relationship, an incredible relationship that I would describe as unique, special, and secluded. The household, the household of God. And then the latter part of verse 15 reads, but you have received the spirit of adoption. As believers, we are brought into the household of God through the means of the grace of adoption by the Spirit of God, the ministry of the Spirit of God who introduces us to this wonderful relationship with uh, the Trinity. Adoption then is, in this context, a very important term. But when you think about adoption, what comes to mind? For most of us, the Western world idea of adoption, or even the modern idea of adoption comes to mind. But that doesn't help with this passage because when Paul wrote 
he's writing from the context of the Greco-Roman world. He's writing from the context of Roman society. And he's, he has in mind the, the, the adoption that existed among the Roman society. And without an understanding of that, it's very difficult to connect really with what it means to be adopted by God and brought into the household of God. So modern adoption is where a child, for example, is placed into a loving family so that that family gives this child hope, love, comfort, peace, a family, the, the, the beauty of being connected to a loving family. However, in the Roman world, they didn't adopt children. They adopted adults. In ancient Roman world, they adopted adult, adult males. And these adult males were anywhere from 20 years old, even through the, 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 uh, the 30s. And they adopted these for the, uh, the purpose of inheritance. And the, the adoptee then became the son of the family. So the adoptee, 20, 30 years are up, and they were adopted into wealthy families. For the most part, if a family had no sons, then they would adopt a son so that that son might carry on the, uh, the, uh, the family tradition. Even if they had a son that they didn't think was worthy of that, capable of that, had the ability to do that, can't be trusted to do that, they would adopt a son so that the son might be able to handle the future of the family. The continuity of the family then rests in the son or this uh, adopted son. To, so, and to understand the, the, the extreme importance of this adopted son, consider the term uh, patria potestes. If you've heard that Latin term, it speaks of uh, the father's power. The father's power in a Roman family allowed the father to do with his born son or daughter whatever he wanted. He had absolute power, absolute authority. He could sell the son for adoption. He could disown the son. He could even have the son put to death for many reasons. In the Roman culture, he had the power to do that. And you understand, like, that, that's essential to this passage because that's where Paul, it, he's, he's coming out of that, that context. And so now when you're adopting, you're adopting someone who carries that on. And you're not going to adopt a baby, obviously, because you don't know what, what, what the baby's going to be like as an adult. And in that world, a lot of babies didn't make it to adulthood. So they adopted men, young men who have proven themselves to have certain abilities, and these abilities are the, the top interest of the family doing the, uh, the adoption. So the head of the family was both the manager of the family, uh, the estate. He was even the priest of, uh, of the family. He, he basically ran the family's religion for the most part, and so when they adopted 
this young man. They were looking for an heir who can step in and carry on that role. Now, the poor, less noble people, they would give their sons up for adoption and, and received a, 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 an exorbitant amount of money, a large sum of money for that adopted son. And it wasn't looked at as something ignoble. It was absolutely, absolutely a noble thing for a family to have their son adopted by uh, upper-class families, rich families. That was an honorable, honorable thing. So adoption was very official. It was legal. It was high level in regard to uh, people involved. You had senators involved. You had emperors involved. You had the noble class of Rome adopting and being adopted. The adoptee would take on the new family's name. He is separated from his old family. He takes on the new family's name, and for the most part, his history is erased, and a new history begins. He's not completely savored from his old family, but those connections and any debt, anything that existed prior to the adoption was erased. So now you have kind of a new soul walking into a relationship with this this new family. And here's a definition that I found that I thought just captures it all, the definition of adoption from Roman society. The condition of a son chosen and given to a father and family to which he doesn't naturally belong to formally and legally declare a son who is not a son by birth, but a son by choice, granting him complete rights and inheritance. Now, here's a summary. I want you to think about these things. The adoptee had a new father, new family, new father. The adoptee became the primary heir to his new father's estate, which was the primary purpose for the adoption in the first place. Inheritance is always connected to the purpose of adoption. And even if there were other children, those children could never uh, displace the adopted children. They could be joint heirs, but they could never displace the adopted child as the, uh, the, rightful, the rightful heir. All the adoptee son's previous debts and responsibilities were cleared. They erased his past life. As I said earlier, he was now legally and absolutely the son and the heir of uh, the new family. The adopted was purchased with a high price, which is one of the reasons the poor families would take on this adventure of a son that was delivered to a wealthy family, and the results were significant. And then finally, an adopted son could not be disowned. Once adopted, it was permanent. And because of the legal nature of the adoption, the adopted son could not be killed like a born son, could not be disowned like a born son, 
could not again be sold into the, the adoption market, if you will, like a born son. So you can, you can conclude from that that an adopted son actually had a better place, a better standing in Roman society than a natural born son. So, this is, and I'll connect it, this is uh, the rich picture of what Christian adoption is all about. This is in the mind of Paul as he's writing. And of course, he doesn't have to explain all of this because he's writing to people who understand this. But we have to explain it as we're preaching the text so that the understanding then that they had, you have as well. And all of this is known uh, truths. You can find this as you study the history of the Roman society and validate that this is exactly what, uh, what Paul means to say, what, what he is insinuating when he talks about us being adopted into the family of God. So I want to read the passage again. And as I read the passage, if you, ha- if you haven't done so, and if you'd like to do it again, think about the passage through what I just shared about adoption. For all of you were led by the Spirit of God, All of you who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God and of children then heirs heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we might be glorified with him. So Roman adoption was primarily for the purpose of inheritance. When Paul uses the term adoption here in Romans and in Galatians, the purpose is to connect believers to the permanency of their inheritance, to talk about you now, as a child of God and the household of God, have an incredible, an incredible inheritance. But with believers, there's a difference. I'm, sh- I'm s- sure when they brought this young man into the family, there might have been some tenderness in the relationship between the new father and the adopted son. That was irrelevant. It didn't need to be. However, you'll notice the tenderness of this relationship that we have now with God as our Father, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. Terms of endearment. It's not any longer just a legal thing. It's a relational thing so that the Spirit of God causes us and our hearts to cry out, Abba, Father. He He is not simply the the ogre to whom we fear. He is the God of our souls. He's the Father of light. He is the one who loves us, shed his love abroad in our hearts so that we might reciprocate that love toward him and toward the people that he loves as well. Think about it. Hopeless, worthless sinners that we were prior to salvation, 
We are brought into the household of God so that we can cry out, Abba, Father. An incredible thing. And I'm going to say this a few times. I'll start saying it now. It'll take the rest of our lives as believers from salvation until we die to figure all that out, to read enough of the Scriptures to learn what that means. Because there's nothing on earth that gives us the sense of what that means to say, Abba, Father, to be adopted into the household of the supreme being of the universe. Nothing. There's nothing external to the Scriptures that will give us the kind of insight that we need to be transformed by that truth. So it's the study of Scripture. It's engulfing the Word of God. It's having the mind of the Apostle Paul. I want to know Christ. And he's saying that near the end of his life. My mentor, I met him when I was 29, brand new Christian. He was 63 at the time. And I remember just being a little frustrated because I felt like he studied the Bible too much. What a frustration, right? So I go and, John, listen, man, you know a lot. I mean, he's teaching me, and I'm fascinated by what he's teaching me. And I say to him, John, why do you study the Bible so much? And he says, Will. He called me Will for Wilson. He said, Will. I study the Bible because I want to know him. And I've never forgotten that, ever. It pressed on my heart. Of course, there was shame because I'm not thinking that way, of course. But he's thinking that way. As a seasoned Christian, he thought that way. He taught, he preached, he did all of that, but he recognized that the, the, the number one reason for engulfing the Scriptures is so that he might know God. And that reason never went away. He's 78 years old, a few years before his death, and he's telling me, Will, the Lord's showing me some things in Scripture. Will, the Lord is dealing with my life in this area. Never, ever did he end his pursuit of knowing God. And that's why the Bible says, crave the pure milk of the word so that by it we might grow in our salvation now that we've tasted that the Lord is good. Grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord. And so understanding the household of God, the adoption of God, is very superficial apart from diving in and mining it all out and reading consistently and letting it wash over us from year to year to year. Now, because of the legal nature of the Roman adoption, a witness was required because there might be times when that situation is challenged. Are you truly the, the uh, parter familias? Are you truly the father of the family? Well, they had witnesses because it was a legal thing. Well, guess what the Bible says? The Bible says uh, that the Holy Spirit bears witness to the truth that we are sons of God. The Spirit of God is our witness. And what that means is this. Whether you are threatened externally with whether you belong to God or not, you know, the accuser is always accusing us before the Father. Scripture says that. And then we have an advocate who is the Lord Jesus Christ who comes on our behalf. 
But when those accusations come, whether they come from external or whether your conscience is challenging you, the Spirit of God is there to bear witness that you are indeed, we are the children of God indeed. And just like the adopted son, the adopted son was also, could be a joint heir a joint heir with the other sons. And the scripture tells us here that we are also fellow heirs with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there's a concept to pull out. Joint heirs with the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord says in Hebrews, I would declare, in the midst, uh, I would declare to my brothers in the midst of congregation your glory. To my brothers in the midst of the congregation. Finally, what do we inherit? We're in the household of God. We're brought in for the purpose of inheritance. What do we inherit? Verse 17, Paul says, We inherit God Himself. We are heirs of God and joint heirs of Christ. We are heirs of God. When you consider that there is no one thing, no one thing, no one person greater than God in all the universe, then you have to conclude that what we are inheriting is inconceivable. It's incredible that people, people, brought into the household of God, now inherit God. And this is why, after salvation, this is why we should spend the rest of our lives studying the Scriptures so that we see what it means to be heirs of God, what it means to be shaped by that, having our minds transformed by that, all of what we get in the Scriptures, all of it, the end of it is so, might, so that we might come to understand him better and our Christian walk reflect that. Our identity is wrapped up in God. We are in the household of God. We have inherited God. We have the Spirit of God within us who bears witness that we are, in fact, sons of God. And we have the Spirit, the Lord Jesus, the, the Father, the Trinity, active in expressing to us this profound truth that we belong to him and the Lord Jesus being our brothers. So when someone should ask, who do you most identify with? I most identify with the God of Scripture. Well, give me more. What does that mean? Well, the Scripture tells me that I have been adopted into the family of God. What does that mean? Well, Roman adoption helps me to understand all of that. The permanency thereof, the inheritance that comes, the beauty of being enraptured in the idea that the God of the universe has called me into his family as a permanent possession. Praise God. Please pray with me. 
Lord, thank you so much for, for your word. You've said that you've exalt, exalted your word above your name, and we understand why. Because it's only through your word that we come to understand you. You've communicated great truths, Lord, and we thank you for it, and we pray that the Spirit of God, your Spirit will lead us in studying and growing and knowing all that we possess uh, through this incredible relationship that we have with you. Lord, thank you for this church. Thank you for what you're doing in it and what you continue to do. I pray, O oh Lord, that you will bless this particular congregation with everything, everything prompted by their faith so that they might indeed be a reflection a beaming light of your glory to this community so that others who are outside of the household of God might be brought in and they might also enjoy the wonders of inheriting you and what that all means. In Jesus' name, amen.